Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Puatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Puatic, and with me, as always, is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is a returning guest, a three-peat guest now, which makes him an official friend of the podcast. It is Michael Betzalel, Executive Vice President, Capital Markets Multifamily with JLL. The first time he joined us was pre-COVID, and the private market was doing fantastic straight across the country, but he had to focus on Ontario. So we spent a lot of time talking about the Ontario market. It was a great conversation. He then rejoined us in probably the darkest days of COVID to discuss what was going on in the market then. Obviously, everybody knows now, looking backwards, that any sort of issues in that market were relatively temporary. But at that time, it would have been April or May of yeah, 2020. I, I wish I had gone back and listened to it. We had a lot of discussions before we hit record. And then during recording, we were pretty cheery and trying to be optimistic and hopeful. But I think it was like middle of April, right? So you remember, it was like probably three weeks into COVID. The world was shut down. We were kind of hypothesizing that, you know, retail is dead. And that was the kind of narrative at the time. And the 180 from the first time, I think when we first had you on, we did a year-end review of apartments in Ontario, particularly Toronto for 2018. Does that sound right? That's right, yeah. And it was booming. The apartment rents were going up. Cap rates were going down. Values were going up. Like it was a really positive, great story. Now you're back. Third time. <laughs> what's, gonna... what's the mood? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me, Aaron and Adam. It's good to be back here. Uh, I understand I'm following a few powerhouses on this <laughs> podcast. So hopefully we can have some relevant and meaningful conversation. It was easy to get me on that podcast during COVID. I didn't have a lot going on at that period of time. Everyone was just trying to figure out the world and the state of the union. But now it's a whole different set of circumstances. For, for context, we're now at, I don't know, 400 and something million cases around the world. I remember being on the, the Zoom call because we were all locked into our houses. And you held up your phone. You said, look, just hit a million worldwide COVID cases. So just for context, that's where we were at the time. Different world now, two yeah. years later. Yeah, well, let's try to put that behind us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, never again. Never to be mentioned again. So not only, of course, has the markets rebounded to, I guess we're back to almost record highs. Maybe Michael will shed some light in that we get into the conversation. But, you know, Michael's star continues to rise. Before he was focused on Ontario, he now has national coverage with a large team spread across the country. He's in every market doing deals. So this time around, we're going to do a much broader view. We're going to get into all the different markets because he is there talking to the people and making deals happen. So we're going to cover uh, the entire country. We, we just got to, I mean, interestingly enough, the parallel with First National, like our salespeople, Adam being one of them, have the same sort of scope. You have to go nationwide because clients go nationwide. Like, That's is right. that not, like, it That's just right. makes perfect and, sense. And to be fair, I have a fabulous team in all major markets across Canada. My partners in Alberta, particularly in Quebec and through the prairies, Western Canada are highly capable. But as the market becomes more institutionalized, particularly with a lot of the leading investors in the country based out of the GTA in Ontario, it does help us to be connected and to work on, on large transactions. So yes, I've been spending more of my time working with my partners but we believe it's added a tremendous amount of value to what we bring to our clients. So let's jump into it then. We'll look at a couple of our markets here. Which one do you start with first? Which is most interesting? So you want to go to east you? to west or yeah. west to east? Favorite to least favorite? Uh, why don't we just start just generally in, in terms of Canada? Last year was probably a record year. Maybe it was a little bit lower than 2019. 
There was $11.2 billion of multifamily that traded across Canada. As I put that in perspective, there were $63 billion of commercial real estate transacted last year. So what is that? About 20%? No, that's 15% of the total commercial real estate transactions went to multifamily. On a five-year average, it's up about 20% over the five-year average, but down slightly from 2019. And you're seeing new benchmark cap rates in all major markets, cap rates ranging from, on average, low threes to high fours. For wood frame in the suburban markets of secondary markets, you're seeing cap rates north of 5%. Housing affordability has become an issue all across the country, which has really fueled the rental market. And we're seeing steady immigration. I think 400,000 immigrants in Canada last year. And there's a plan to add another 400 to 450,000 year over year through 2024. So we're in a very strong rental, multifamily rental market, as well as you know an investment market. And again, one of the trends that we saw, particularly over the last two years, which I think is going to start to flip, was a push to the suburbs. Whether if you look at CMHC vacancy rates across the country for larger suites and for suburban markets, you'll see vacancies down for larger suites in suburban markets, and it's up in the downtown core and smaller units. And townhouse values have increased a lot quicker than potentially downtown concrete. So that's just a general overview. Alberta was a bit of a no-fly zone for most institutions in the last two years, and it's rebounding very strong, particularly now with oil coming up. So we can start west and head east, or we well, can just start here right in before, Toronto. Before we drill down to specific markets, at a national level, we've had positive Michael on the podcast. We have a negative Michael on the podcast. What threats do you see at a national level to stymie the rebound of the apartment market that's now in you know, kind of yeah. full bloom? And don't I say mean, interest rates because that yeah, maybe one yeah, of Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And it's funny because interest, we've been through this a number of times in the past 15, 20 years that I've been in the business. And every time interest rates move, everybody believes we're going to see a, a big spike in cap rates. And it just doesn't happen. When the stock markets get beat up, real estate inflates uh, as a hedge. So my opinion is this is the new normal. Multifamily values are not even yet at replacement cost. And particularly with construction costs going up tremendously, I still think that kind of insulates the value of multifamily real estate. And your clients, are they expressing any doom and gloom on the horizon or is everybody pretty bullish on it? I think there is a tremendous amount of demand for apartments. There are new players in the market. I feel that overall, they're still, you know, it's a steady eddy. And in uncertain times, multifamily seems to always prevail. It's a predictable asset class. And I think the pandemic proved that when you had 95% collections through the toughest times through COVID, this is where institutions like to put their money, where you have predictable income and steady increases in rent. Let's keep it national. This is interesting, sort of just general multifamily conversation, then we'll dive in more nuanced soon. You mentioned institutionalization, right, of the apartment space, which, which ultimately comes with just a tidal wave of capital, a wall of capital, whatever you want to call it. Just there's so much liquidity and to fair, like no secret, of course, apartments are the the safest of the asset classes of the food groups, and so they're it's attractive. Like you just mentioned, it's, it's the stability and the durability through any challenge, it it kind of continues to operate, which means less opportunity. Though I think in 2018, 2019, last time we talked, when we had the first conversation, you mentioned Starlight being one of the most active, and Starlight's program, of course, is buy sort of depressed assets with depressed rents, and with a major upswing, put in a platinum retrofit program and boom, rents are up 
40% from what you bought. So you might be buying it at two cap, but you're really buying it at a stabilized five cap or whatever it may be. There just isn't nearly as much of that low-hanging fruit anymore because they're not the only ones that were doing that. There were lots of institutions Correct. taking that approach. And so and this is just generally across the country. Are, are you seeing a bit more challenge for people to find those types of opportunities where you're really kind of, you might be buying at a three cap going in and it's going to be stabilized at a three and a half cap. Like it, you're not getting that kind of delta between right. what you're buying at versus what you're going to end up after a retrofit program. Is that true? One. And then how are your clients kind of, where are the opportunities now? It's difficult to answer that question because everybody has a different way of valuing their real estate and, or, or a different mandate. There tends to be a big push for new purpose-built rental as opposed to value add, even at low yields, steady low yields. And despite the fact that, yes, the lower the cap rate, typically that means the higher the opportunity or the greater the opportunity is to increase rents, there's still a tremendous gap between average rents in most properties and market rents, particularly in markets, in most markets, except, you know, Manitoba, where you have somewhat rent control in Alberta. But in Ontario, for example, like any property that we're underwriting today, there's still a 25 to 40% gap in rents, sometimes even much higher, depending on who the manager was and how they were managing the asset. And that's because of rent control, even in a starlight building where you may have, they acquired it three, four years ago with 10% turnover a year, there's still a big chunk of the building that needs to turn over. So there is a lot of value add. Renovation scopes have changed and amenities have changed. Competing with new purpose-built rental has become a real factor. And I still think there's a lot of juice left in it on the existing purpose-built market. Yeah, to that note, it is funny. I mean, we, you know, Aaron and I talked to a lot of borrowers and uh, ones that maybe are not that familiar with the way buildings roll and getting old tenants out. The stickiness. The stickiness, it feels like yeah. there's more stickiness now than there yeah. has been in the past. They'll say, oh, we'll, we'll do a, you know, a one-year bridge and we'll roll 50% of these leases that are now 20 years old and we'll, you know, have a full building at these market rents. They go, well, let's Nobody do a five-year bridge because, yeah, the, and the rollover could consist of your top of market units, not your older rents. So it, it is a funny one. I'm sure it's something you track as well, but, you know, with the rollover getting down to single digits, I mean, 10% might even be ambitious for a lot of buildings. Mm-hmm. It's a more difficult strategy to execute on. It is. We're actually in the market right now with an asset that has 70%, 72% vacancy. It's an Why? estate sale. And the owner prior to his passing just was defiant against improving the asset and didn't care to rent the building. He lived there himself, wasn't important to him. So it actually, it's a feeding frenzy for this asset. Sure. The yeah, amount sure. of the, the opportunity to go in there. And, All the hard work's and, done. And reposition. The hard work is in terms of creating yeah. vacancy, but in terms of heavy lifting and renovation scope, there's an opportunity to create something immediately, which is really enticing. And so- as you could imagine, we have a tremendous amount of demand for that asset. Do you want to jump into some markets? Sure. Yeah. You want to do this? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's Lead us off. I mean, I think it's probably a good news story in almost all of them, which is nice. But uh, let's, let's, let's. I'm just going to pick one and we can go. Yeah. So let's start in Toronto, which is your backyard. It's actually, we haven't mentioned it. We're sitting here in person. I don't want to say live, but in person, live at Toronto, at First National's new office at 16 York in Toronto overlooking the water here. And uh, it's kind of nice to be doing this in person. It, is, it makes yes. it a way better interview. Adam and I aren't looking at our phones going, who's going to ask a question next? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can just look over the table and know that he's got something brewing in his in his head. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, sorry. From 16 York, downtown Toronto and South Core, tell us about what's going on in the apartment market in 2021. Yeah. So last year was a record year or 
I think it was just slightly under by about like $25 million less than 2019. But the neat thing about it, so there's just under $3.3 billion of transactions done in the GTA last year, and there was just over $3.3 billion done in 2019. But the, the Continuum REIT deal was 2019. And I'm not sure if the wind deal was that year or the year before, but there were a lot of major transactions that occurred in 2019. And 2021, like the biggest buyer of the year was only $400 million or $440 million in Toronto. So there was actually the most activity, in my opinion, in terms of just market deals. We're seeing average price per suite around 300 a door. That said, the average price per suite numbers are starting to become less meaningful as you're now mixing in new purpose-built rentals and some premium assets. You know, Capreet bought the Tower Hill property for, I think it was like three quarters of a million dollars a unit. There was uh, the Rockport portfolio that Dream bought. Also, new purpose-built rental. Rio Can sold half their interest to Woodbourne at a high price per door. So price per door average has gone up. We've seen a 10% year-over-year increase. We're seeing cap rates consistently dropping. We're now averaging just in the very low 3% range, which also you can't really take too much weight in the cap reported cap rate numbers as you know only about 25% of the deals actually report cap rates. And they're highly subjective in many cases. But even from our perspective of what we're selling and what we're underwriting, we're seeing deals go in some cases, even in the low or in the mid to high twos, depending on how much upside there is. And in the low to mid threes, you know, the better they are. So a really great year, a ton of demand, a lot of new buyers. Achilles is back in the market. Dream, as I said, is dipping their toe into the existing purpose-built rental market in Ontario. Actually, Starlight was not as active in 2021. They did about triple the volume outside of the, in Southwest Ontario that they did in Toronto. Capri acquired a couple of, of nice assets. Well, it's probably worth mentioning too, like Starlight's always a relative thing. You know, they've had years where they're half the market. So if they slow down to uh, only 30% of yeah. the market. It's still well, a yeah, because massive Now year. they're spending all their time and energy retrofitting the units of those buildings they acquired, <laughs> right? So Yeah, and they have a national approach and um, they're very diverse in what they're capable of buying, which allows them to be very flexible. But they've been very active. They dominated in Southwest Ontario this year. And maybe that's a, a good segue. That market has really been on fire, you know, in the past year, we did a few hundred million dollars of activity in London. I don't think we did. We sold a couple things to them, but Capri bought a Z Group portfolio. We sold another large asset in London, a portfolio in Windsor. And if you look at overall volume in Southwest Ontario, between London and Windsor and Guelph and Cambridge, KW, there was two, almost two and a half billion dollars of transactions last year, which is like over a billion dollars more than 2020 and even 2019. I think it's like 900 million more than 2019. Almost 11,000 suites traded. We're seeing price per suite on average approaching 200 a door. And there are examples of deals going in the mid 200s, even in London. Cap rates sub 4% in some cases on average in Southwest Ontario. I actually had a friend of mine flip me the JLL. I think it was the North American real estate report, like a 50-page report. And he's from KW. And he said, look, we made it. Like, it was a national report out of New York City. And the very last page was West Golden Horseshoe that I'd really only ever thought about it as kind of close to the water. But 
it was really the West Golden Horseshoe is now this sort of growing, booming, which in Guelph, KW, Cambridge, Brantford, all the way down. I mean, you tell me how it's defined all the way down, but it's that whole area that is, quite yeah. frankly, growing rapidly with lots of attraction. Yep. Lots of universities that are providing a whole bunch of tech jobs, right? So it is a really… And it's an affordability issue too, And right? still so, only an hour, an hour and 20 minutes from Toronto. Yeah. Not that that necessarily matters in this day and age, but the proximity is still… You could, in theory, commute a couple of days a week if you wanted to, right? Don't be modest. It matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're seeing groups like Killam. Killam acquired almost $200 million of real estate in Kitchener-Waterloo. Equiton dipped their toe into London and bought a beautiful building there for close to 300 a door. Sorry, that was in Kitchener, I believe. And some private capital came back in London as well for you know almost a $100 million deal that we did. CapReit into rent is active in these markets. Real Star bought, like it was about 90-something million dollar property in Milton. I believe that was a new purpose-built rental. And Starlight did, you know, over half a billion dollars in Southwest Ontario last year. So with a couple of major portfolios. So it's very active. And I think the market there is immature compared to Toronto. So there's a little more juice left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're chasing yield, I mean, a four cap versus a three and a half cap is material. Like it it ultimately is, right? And the rents, what are the rents? Is the cash flow that much different? And also, I think there's just more value opportunity to create there where you don't have this sort of sophistication and the sweet turns generally that's already been kind of worked in in Toronto. And you're not trying to take rents from four and a quarter per square foot up to five and a quarter per square foot. You know, when you keep on getting to the next level, it just gets a little harder to (laughs) to top it. It's also just difficult to find product here. And that's part of the reason that we expanded our team to really focus on Southwest Ontario as well. Well, before we leave Ontario, any commentary on Ottawa? Ottawa has always been a very tight market. Not a lot of trades in Ottawa. You got six owners that own the whole city. When something comes available, it typically moves pretty quickly. There's only about $680 million of transactions last year in Ottawa. And I think close to $270 million of it was the one deal where Homestead bought Island Park Towers, which was a spectacular asset with huge suites, newer construction. When I say newer construction, I wasn't that close to the transaction. I think 1980s construction, like condo grade, large units, sub three cap, but lots of opportunity to add value. The other thing that's happening in Ottawa is that there's a ton of new development. Last year, there were over 4,500 new purpose-built rental suites under construction, and I think 2,000 suites completed in Ottawa. So I guess the idea of it's very difficult to get real estate in Ottawa it's easier to build it. That seems to be what's happening there. And there's a vibrancy there, right? It's got a lot of investment from the municipalities, better public transportation that's coming in. And of course, two major universities that also helps drive. And it's a very federal steady, government, right? Like it's always yeah. been a very steady <laughs> rental market. Yeah. Do you want to move east before we go west? Maybe talk about Quebec? The, no, yeah. The absolutely so, massive um, apartment market. We have a, an incredible team. My partners, Mark Sinet and Seb Gaddy, manage our uh, multifamily capital markets group out of Montreal. We've had a lot of success in Quebec. The Quebec market historically has always been a bit different than the rest of the country. Bit older stock, highly fragmented ownership base, uh, a lot of private capital, a little bit behind in terms of, from a cap rate perspective, some more value add. But in the past few years, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that institutional investors now understand that it's not separating, Quebec's not separating. So we've seen a big push from some institutional owners into Montreal and into Quebec over the past few years. 
Capri just closed on a major portfolio. I don't know if it was this week, you know, about $280 million of new purpose-built rental, the Joya portfolio. And uh, obviously, if you haven't heard about it, Centurion Apartment REIT bought one of the biggest transactions in Quebec's history, uh, about a $650 million acquisition for two-thirds of the Trigon portfolio. It's about 3,700 units. I think they've already bought the other third that make it about a billion-dollar deal when it closes this year. A lot of all new purpose-built rental as well. We're excited to launch a new purpose-built rental portfolio there as well. You're seeing a lot of activity. We did a, another big deal that we sold in Quebec City, uh, Oxford portfolio to a private developer. You know that we actually sold a, an asset prior to that. And we're talking about four and three quarter caps for older new purpose-built rental in Quebec City. You know, so there's a lot of big stuff trading, a lot of new purpose built that was built over the past three, four years by merchant developers that is now starting to trade. You're seeing on average cap rates in Quebec or in Montreal across the GMA around 4%, three and a half for good locations, sub 300 a door on average, but over 350 a suite for uh, downtown core and about $1.6 billion in trades of multifamily. But most of it was in the suburbs. So Montreal is very active. It's very exciting to be there, to be doing deals, and to be working with a lot of the Ontario-based institutions there that don't have a big foothold in that market. Well, is it getting attention now that it was not getting before? I mean, you keep hearing about MTV being the, the hottest thing in the country. And of course, you know, Montreal might not have been part of that conversation five, six years ago. Are you seeing a lot of interlopers trying to uh, get in? On yeah, I mean, if you look uh, at who's locals? bought recently in the past number of years— Minto's made a big play into Montreal. Centurion Reed, as I mentioned, even Globe General, based out of Winnipeg, has entered that market in an active way. Interrent Reed has been active in Quebec. Hazelview, you know, continues to be more active there. So more institutional owners, asset management groups that have the green light to go to Quebec. And you're right, it's not brand new news. This has been going on for a number of years, and it continues to get stronger. Montreal is just a little bit different. I haven't seen the updated stats, but it is staggering and I wish I had them. But if you think about the number of apartment units in the universe, maybe Michael, you do have a better sense of this. Like almost half of them in Canada are in Montreal. It is. I don't have the stats, but I do remember a roundabout statistic where about just under half of all Ontarians rent. And in Quebec, it's like 65%. So there's almost a 20% Delta in terms of number of renters. And it's just, it's a cultural difference renting and, you know, joie de vivre, let's say, spend your money on your life, not on your home. And that's part of the reason why there's a lot more product there. And it creates the stability and attracts the capital. Where next? Vancouver, about a billion eight in multifamily trades last year, which was 40 units. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the wind in the sail in that market. It is. The, it's, the it's per about, unit value is enormous. <laughs> yeah, I think there was about another three or $400 million done in the other regions of BC. Most of the volume was done in Vancouver. You're seeing average price per suite in Vancouver suburbs around 400 a door. And downtown could be north of 500 on average. Mostly all privates. A bit of a different mix of product type, a lot of wood frame, low rise, very difficult to acquire concrete in Vancouver. I'd say the biggest, most prominent deal that occurred last year was the Interrent 
and Crest Point joined forces and bought Hollyburn's portfolio. It might have closed at the beginning of last year. It was about 615 units or so for just under 300 million. It was just under 500,000 a suite and uh, one of the largest portfolios in the country in 2021. Starlight also bought about 740 units from a private owner, I think outside of the core downtown for about 230 million bucks. So another big transaction that occurred in BC. And you're seeing also there a lot of new purpose-built rental starting to go up. It's a little bit more of a flexible rental environment in terms of rent controls and being able to remove rental as opposed to Ontario where it's very difficult to remove rental without providing affordable units, as you guys know. And we're talking to clients who have a national exposure. Do you find that they get a little heartburn on the per unit values there and the cap rates? I know that you know, groups I speak with, you do run into that where you go, it's just that market's become yeah. too much. Yeah, I do. That's why it's been generally dominated by private capital, a lot of foreign capital. It's a diversification play for a lot of investors who just want to have an allocation in Vancouver. I mean, I guess when you're in Toronto being financial capital of the country, which has like legitimate economic industries driving its forces, and it's still a higher cap and a lower price per door than Vancouver, it's hard to digest. That said, we actually had overall, Toronto had a lower, finally surpassed Vancouver last year on an average cap rate. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Wow, but as I up. said, you got to look at that with a grain of salt. Because I've, I've heard you argue on... before the cap rates are not created equally. Exactly. I've seen you uh, soapbox at real estate forums. Yeah. How do you <laughs> stabilize R&M or what, you know, it's like that yeah. AFFO concept, right? Like what's CapEx, what's R&M, what are you putting in there? Are you including management? Are you including salaries and benefits? Like, it's so okay, And deferred maintenance and how much upside is there and the trajectory of the neighborhood and all those kinds of things. So yeah, it is it, cap rate you have to look at. It's you know, a very, very vague concept <laughs> that we love attaching. But well, on no. average, Toronto <laughs> yeah. did have a lower yeah. cap rate than okay. Vancouver in 2020. I love when you get into these conversations. I think it's a three and a quarter cap. No, it's three and a half. It's like, okay, guys, it really doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do it. Okay, well, let's keep moving because we're running out of time here. Last but not least, of course, the prairies, Alberta, sure. Winnipeg, Regina, yeah. Saskatoon. Like, What is your team seeing there and how is 2021? We've been very active in Alberta and the prairies. I've got fantastic partners out there. Prices actually went down in 2021 from 19 and 20. But I think we're at a point right now where there's a lot of optimism in the market from Alberta. Obviously, oil's gone crazy. I think we're over $120, $130 a barrel today. Who knows? But it's storming back. And there was a big push during the last two years out of the core into the ring road suburban wood frame where you're able to achieve, you know, five cap kind of returns where the downtown concrete, call it a four cap, was very difficult to move. There's been a couple of brand new purpose-built rental buildings on the market in downtown Edmonton, one that we've been marketing and is going well. A trade that occurred, Hazelview bought the CX. We believe around 4% stabilized based on the fact that it's only been leased 30 to 40%. But there's been a lot of transactions, as I said, on like the low rise wood frame. I call it older, newer purpose built rental. You know, we did the MIP portfolio that closed just a few weeks ago in Calgary, about 764 suites. Minto sold Avenue Living, about a four cap. And, you know, I think just there's a lot of optimism in Alberta. They're a little more progressive in terms of the COVID rules. 
There's actually a big Ukrainian population in Alberta and they're expecting some migration, which will be great for the rental market. And there's some dedicated buyers that are really active for that kind of product, Onika and Main Street. We actually sold a property to the city of Edmonton who's been active trying to accumulate some affordable housing. So I think there's a good story both in Calgary and Edmonton. I think you're going to start to see some of that downtown concrete finally trading. In terms of as you go further east, Regina, Saskatoon, I mean, these are always been tough markets with very little institutional demand because there are only 300,000 people that live in both of those markets. Well, it's kind of like you said, you said Ottawa had six families. There's kind of two families just trading around. And it's still a private capital dominated investment market. You know, a lot of these families have built up a lot of wealth over the years, just refinancing their assets and then are capable of competing because there's not the same kind of demand from the typical national buyers, particularly in Saskatoon and Regina. So you're seeing cap rates in those markets north of 5%, 5, 5.25% for new purpose-built or good purpose-built and, you know, value add probably somewhere around 5. Winnipeg, under 5 caps. Winnipeg has a bit of a different story because you can't really raise, like there's no opportunity to increase rents because it's rent-controlled. You could raise rents, but only, you know, everybody's at market. So you're not creating opportunity on turnover. Winnipeg's approaching a million people now. I think we're at 850,000 or 900,000 people. So I think we're going to start to see a little bit more activity. There's been quite a bit development of new purpose built in Winnipeg. I think over the next couple of years, Winnipeg is going to offer a number of large portfolios that will likely trade on a national platform. We did one transaction in Saskatoon from Quadreal to a private owner, high net worth for the Saskatoon Tower. And this is like a dominant downtown concrete, high rise, a spectacular asset, but older. And it was not the kind of feeding frenzy that we would have expected. You put that asset in another market in Canada, you know, everybody would be all over it. So yeah, a lot of exciting. I think the Prairies has a good story also with oil coming up, both in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba. I think we're going to see an increase in value in those markets. Another thing to add is that there was a big boom in construction in Saskatchewan because the government was offering tax freezes for new purpose-built rentals because the supply was below the uh, demand. And since that's caught up, a lot of those tax incentives have been removed. So I think we're going to see, you know, and with land being so cheap out there, it was easier to buy and build. And I think with some of those tax rebates coming out, being pulled off, that we're going to see an increase in value in some of those an existing purpose built. I just want to revisit one thing you mentioned, the large Ukrainian population uh, would be through all three provinces we're talking about, of course, not just uh, Alberta. Primarily in Alberta, as far as I'm aware. Is that reference to the, to the war in the Ukraine, that you'll get yeah. refugees coming over in large numbers? Yeah. So I just wanted to, to clarify hopefully. that was the discussion. I mean, I think Trudeau's already mentioned that he's looking at doing a, a mass immigration to help out those people. So yeah, the provinces that have established communities will benefit from that in terms of immediate I thought you weren't going to say the T word. Wait, what's the T word? (laughs) (laughs) I don't say it. Voldemort. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I know that in general, Canada has strong immigration. You know, I expect that we're going to see it drive the rental market, you know, in all markets. But particularly, I am aware that 
Alberta has specifically a large Ukrainian population, so in both Calgary and Edmonton. So I do expect that will help drive the rental market and potentially some more purpose-built rental. Michael, I love the prospect Province breakdown. You obviously did a fair bit of research before you came in to dig through your files. What? No, that together. was all on top of his head. Yeah. No, no, thank you for bringing it to us. We're almost out of time, but for closing thoughts, I want to go back to a national view. And right now we're sitting here in March of 2022. What do you see for the balance of the year? Any surprises coming up? Where are we going to see transactions? What should people be watching out for? Yeah, it's a great question. 2022 is going to have a lot of activity. It appears that the $100 million mark is not even a big deal anymore. There's a lot of $100 plus million deals going on. And now we're talking about $200 million and half a billion. And there's a lot of new players in the market that have a lot of capital. And there's a lot of old players that have a lot of capital and are looking at it a different way. And potentially they have a lot of capital from different investors. So I do expect it's going to be a very active year in terms of new purpose-built rental portfolios that are trading. We've been talking about building new purpose-built rental for 10 years, but we haven't really talked too much about selling new purpose-built rental. And it seems to be a quickly emerging trend and it's dominating the landscape. And I think the requirement for institutional capital to own new purpose-built rental has developed as well as building it themselves. So it's going to be an active year ahead of us. I'm hoping. I know that we've got a lot of different types of assets, big and small, in the market and coming to market, both here in Ontario and across Canada. We're working with a lot of different groups and uh, you know, we're looking forward to a very strong 2022. It is an interesting view. You're absolutely right. I mean, it was two or three, maybe four years ago where purpose-built rentals started to become attractive, right? Where you heard Choice and Crombie and Rio Can and now Cadillac Fairview, and they were all putting it in their plans. And now you're starting to see it being delivered, right? So all of a sudden, whether it was intended to be sold or not, but it's now hitting the market in droves, right? Those Units under construction numbers really started to take off about two, three, four years ago. it's proven. And I think just briefly, my experience with new purpose-built rental, and it happened in Western Canada a lot earlier than it did here, partly because of the activity in wood frame, new purpose-built, which we don't seem to do in Ontario. But developers would build, I'm building 300 units and the market's at a four cap. This is what my value is, but it's a $100 million property, but it's really just a $10 million piece of land right now. So it's worth $10 million with a great idea. And then as you build it, you're creating more value. Now these things are built and there are metrics out on what kind of rents you can achieve, what kind of expense ratios you can achieve. And there's a lot more confidence as to how these things will perform. And there's precedence of what they should trade for. So I think that the gap between buyer's expectations and seller's expectations has become has actually met. And we're now at a point where you know what these assets should trade for and they're legitimately liquid. And you talked about that vacant building that was really attractive. Now, that was an existing asset, but I think we're finding, even on the lending side, where we're financing the construction with the intention of converting to a term loan and holding it, but maybe not. I think the developers are eyes wide open as, let's see what it looks like when I'm delivering these units and what makes the most amount of sense at that time. Yeah, no, for sure. 
Thank you, Michael. That was great. As always, love the conversation, love the perspective. Congratulations on sort of the national scope. You're probably spending a lot more time in airports and planes, particularly as we kind of skate out of COVID. Hopefully your family is okay with that. Again, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. And thanks, listeners. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you inviting me on and uh, look forward to the next one. Number four is coming up for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.